It's a Tuesday on Today in Ohio, and it is a significant Tuesday, which we'll be talking about any moment now on the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Leila Tassi, and Courtney Astolfi. And Courtney, you get it. If you care about democracy in Ohio, what's significant about today? Today's the day. Early voting starts for state issue one, and that's the ballot measure we've seen debated for months down in the state house among activist groups. We've been talking about it on the podcast, and now's the chance for voters to start weighing in here. And this is, as we know, the issue that would impose minority rule when it comes to constitutional amendments, change it from a simple majority up to a 60% threshold. And what we're seeing today is voters can go to boards of elections and start doing their early in-person votes. All the boards should have opened at 8 a.m. and it's on. Also, what we're seeing today are boards of elections sending out that first wave of absentee ballots. And those will start going out to folks who have already requested them, but you still have time to request them moving forward. But that first batch should be hitting the mailbox. In Cuyahoga County, a reporter talked to the Board of Elections. They said they've already been in touch with the Postal Service. They know that this is an important election and the mail's got to get where it needs to go. Yesterday was the deadline to register. And if you're looking to vote in person, it's that August 8th date. Yeah, and we do have a story up. There are a lot of people anxious about their mail-in ballot applications. The story explains how you can check the status of it. This is a chance for Cuyahoga County, which has always had a chip on its shoulder for its status, to really exert its authority. If Cuyahoga County has a massive turnout, and most of the county will vote against this, that could be enough in a low turnout election to turn the tide. So if you're listening, go vote, because this is a chance to stand up for democracy, to stand up for the value of the voter. Remember, this is the Republicans in the state legislature and all the elected leaders trying to concentrate their power at the expense of the voter. There's no reason to do it, but they're doing it because they don't want the voters to be able to stop their antics. And we've been talking for months about all the wild stuff they've been passing down there that is contrary to the best interest of the citizens of Ohio. It's distressing to me that Mike DeWine, John Houston, and every other elected Republican in the state supports this because they're basically taking a stand against democracy and the voters. It's it's refreshing that the former governors are all against it and former attorney generals are against it. And the former Supreme Court justice, a Republican, is against it. And you're seeing a lot of Republicans recognizing this damages them as much as it damages Democrats. It's just a bad idea. And and just to get back to you mentioned the importance of Cuyahoga County here. We don't we don't have firm numbers. We all know that August elections aren't the most popular for folks to go to. It's been nearly a century before there's since there's been a statewide one on a ballot issue. And in last year's August primary, we saw just historically low turnout. In Cuyahoga County, it sounds like ballot requests are up from last year's August primary, but they're still far behind a typical election. And it probably will come down to turnout. And just want to remind folks, like you were saying, this this change to our democracy and constitution that could go through with this, you know, this 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 question really only got serious consideration from lawmakers after the abortion decision from the Supreme Court last year. Kick the question back to the states and 
we saw a bunch of other states defeat or pass constitutional amendments to protect their state's residents' rights to abortion and autonomy. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Reporter Andrew Tobias spent part of the weekend with both the pro and anti-campaigns for issue one. Layla, what was the overarching message each side delivered? Andrew tells us that even though issue one backers have downplayed the connection between issue one and, and the movement to defeat the reproductive rights constitutional amendment, Abortion is very much at the center of this for both sides. That has been obvious at campaign events, and it came up time and again during canvassing in Columbus area neighborhoods. Either folks who answered their door had something to say about it, or the activists themselves folded it into their spiel about why it should or shouldn't be harder to change the state's constitution. One Republican county commissioner down there said, a rushed process leads to bad decisions and abortion is a bad decision. So this has been very, very present in the discussion. Andrew says the the pro-issue one folks held voting kickoff events throughout the state aimed at branding this as a Republican priority in an effort to motivate the base. That traditional political campaign is steering clear, though, of tying issue one to abortion because that's not an issue that Republicans are necessarily united on. But beyond that, social conservative organizations are trying to tap into church networks, and they're very much connecting the dots between issue one and abortion. In fact, they've printed 150,000 pamphlets to emphasize that for Christian voters. The anti-issue one coalition, which includes Democrats and labor unions and voting rights groups, are holding their own competing events throughout the state, and their messaging is focusing on what's at stake if issue one passes, and most immediately, that could mean reproductive rights. So the issue one opponents told Andrew that they are trying to harness the momentum that was created by the reproductive rights petition drive. I still think there's a sense of fair play going on here, too. I think most Ohioans recognize the sleazy tactic of putting this on the August ballot, mm-hmm. that these, this legislature is the one that abolished August elections. But to sneak this through, counting on low turnout, they put this on the August ballot. That's not fair. It's not smart. It's not good. And I think people recognize that it could blow up in their face. Like we said, if Cuyahoga County turns out in big numbers, because that makes a low turnout election easier to sway. You would hope that for many Republicans that, that the unfairness of this, the hypocrisy of, of what they're doing would register. I do think that for a lot of people though, the ends might justify the means if it aligns with their own politics, if it aligns with their own view on the issue of abortion. Yeah, but that's a double-edged sword. More people in Ohio favor abortion than oppose it. So that that could build up just as much or more fervor from the other side. We'll know on August 8th. You know, I... <laughs> I want to uh, want to give a shout out to my friend Kirk, who listens to this podcast every day. After he heard our discussion yesterday, he texted me and said that nothing would make him happier than seeing issue one fail sixty one to thirty nine percent. I agree; that would be completely poetic justice in this case. All right, you're listening to today in Ohio. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine is often described as too cozy with Ohio's utilities, although he was not incriminated in the first Energy HB6 scandal. 
But his coziness makes one of his budget vetoes last week all that much more remarkable. Lisa, what budget boon to utilities did he veto and why? Yeah, and he actually showed a little bit of backbone here, maybe for the first time since the pandemic shut down. But Republican lawmakers in the General Assembly had added budget provisions that would have allowed electricity providers to charge customers to fund infrastructure for speculative economic development sites. So that means just, you know, no owner present or no even project present. And um, this would have been funded with a monthly surcharge to customers or tapping into a $1 billion fund. It also would have allowed gas companies to charge customers $67 million for new infrastructure and allow electric utilities to charge customers for building out EV, electric vehicle charging stations, uh, because an added load is required. But DeWine vetoed all of that. Um, He said that these gave too much discretion to power companies to make determinations, which really should be up to the state instead. And backing him on this was the Ohio Consumers Council and the the Ohio Manufacturers Association. They praised these vetoes. They say there's no protections for consumers and it favors utilities over customers and that we need guardrails from the excess and self-interest of utility companies. But the CEO of AEP, the parent company of First Energy, wrote a letter to lawmakers in support, and they even are saying that they'll probably lobby to override this veto. Look, what this whole episode shows is that the legislature has learned nothing from HB6. They, they, they had a blank check. First Energy had a blank check, and it led to massive corruption and Larry Householder is going to probably spend the rest of his life in prison as a result. You would think the legislature would have learned a lesson saying, you know, maybe we should have guardrails because that's our job is to make sure that the citizens are served. I was surprised Mike DeWine vetoed it because he's been very cozy with the utilities. I think it's interesting. He said the utilities would have too much power, you know, (laughs) interesting juxtaposition of words, but, but good that he did it. I wonder whether they'll try and override it. The difference is if they try and override that with a vote, they're all on the record. They're all going to be on the record for supporting you know, graft with the utilities. This would have let the utilities have a blank check. They could have done anything they wanted and we'd have all had to pay for it. What kind of policy is that? And good for Mike DeWine for saying, yeah, that's bad policy. Well, and I think that, you know, utility companies feel like they've been let off the hook or First Energy. They paid, what, $230 million in a deferred, you know, prosecution. So they figure, okay, we can move on now and let's try to stick it to the customer in other ways. Yeah, and it's still amazing to me that none of the executives at First Energy have been charged. It's pretty shameful behavior by the prosecutor's office to be three years into this thing, and those guys are all still walking free with a mountain of evidence against them that's already in the public record. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Something DeWine advocated for was included in the budget, something that will give Ohio more revenue from the state's wildly popular sports betting. Courtney, what is that? Yeah, sports betting companies starting retroactively July 1st now have to start paying double the amount of taxes on their winnings that they had um, when the state first rolled this out a few months ago. So this was a pretty quick change to the betting industry right as it's getting off the ground. And DeWine last week signed this provision into law as part of the state budget. He, he hopes that this increase in taxation from 10 to 20% on winnings 
will will send a message, I suppose, to sports betting companies about their aggressive ad campaign. So, you know, Dwine spokesman told us that this wasn't about increasing the state's revenue here. This was about cracking down on sports betting companies, some of which got in trouble earlier this year. Several were fined for various ads or promotions that regulators say broke the state's rules. And at that time, DeWine issued a public warning. So this has kind of been one of his issues, and this is how he's bringing the hammer down. Meanwhile, we've got Ohio House Majority Leader Bill Seitz. He thinks it's short-sighted. Other folks in the betting industry think it's short-sighted. And Bill Seitz kind of, it seemed, took a shot at DeWine in this story. He said he didn't think Ohio Republicans like to raise taxes. So it seemed to be a criticism there. But we did talk to some folks in the in the sports betting industry who did raise some concern, saying because this is a fledgling industry, because it's getting off the ground, this increase in taxes could knock some of the smaller players out and and could lead to fewer people competing for all of our money. And, and, you know, it could also increase the illegal sports betting market. This is a troubling development. To use taxes as a weapon, that's not what taxes are supposed to be for. We've had a lot of conversations in the past year about the use of taxes. When, when Justin Bibb wanted to use taxes to help women get out of out of the state for abortion. It was an interesting conversation about, hey, is that the purpose of taxes? This is a whole new realm. I don't like your messaging, so I'm going to tax you? And I don't care about the revenue? I just want to punish you with taxes? When, when in the history of this country has that been a thing? I mean, that's not really the way you guide it. These companies that violated the advertising laws got body slammed and had to pay very big fines for it. Isn't that the proper way of dealing with misbehavior? You know, that that struck me as odd in here too. I, I don't that reasoning I've never I've never heard someone say before we're doing taxes as a punitive thing. If that's the case, let's start taxing the utility companies. I just <laughs> I don't know how far does that line of thinking go? Well, we're very critical of aspects of government. So if they get upset about that, do they just say, okay, we're going to create a news tax? I mean, that's not what it's supposed to be. You're not supposed to be venal as the government. You create taxes to pay for services and, you know, other aspects of, of improving the lives of taxpayers to raise that revenue. You, it's, it's not supposed to be a big stick because you don't like the way somebody's behaving. I, I, I find this to be a stunning development. We're going to look deeper to see if it's ever happened before because this just does not feel like it's proper. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Layla, Mike Garfield Heights voters have a say on a Cuyahoga County executive Chris Ronane proposal to build the new jail in that suburb. Yeah, so so the 72-acre plot on Transportation Boulevard and Granger Road is, is currently zoned for industrial park uses, and it likely needs to be reclassified if they want to put a jail there. And the city charter suggests that that would require a vote of the people, but city law director Tim Riley said they had a legal expert look at it, and their interpretation is that it would not require a vote. Instead, it could just be approved by the city's five-member board of zoning appeals. That's because the city would simply seek special use of the land and skip the zoning entirely. 
approach could fly because there's no district, there's no zoning district that permits jails. There is, however, a section of the codified ordinances that permits special uses as being for, quote, city hall, fire station, police station, and the like, or similar public or quasi-public building, a jail would potentially fall under that umbrella. That zoning appeals board is appointed by the mayor, and he has already thrown his support behind the jail site in Garfield. Uh, County Council, which has already shown resistance to this Garfield site, is making kind of a big stink about the zoning as a potential roadblock. But county officials have pointed out that any site they choose will need to be rezoned because none of the options is zoned for a jail. So the county council made a big fuss out about nothing. I feel like they're, we're in romper room with these guys. <laughs> they're just children in every way they behave. It's it's just so sad that this is what we're stuck with. Venal, mean-spirited, childish behavior. Chris Ronane attack their stupid plan to put it on a benzene-contaminated site, and they're going to get even by throwing all this mud when it that it shouldn't be there. There's not a problem with zoning. It's something that'll happen quickly, but they're trying to make a dust cloud with it. It's pathetic. Yeah, it's really hard to see how this is going to turn out. I it's it's already so ugly, and they're just in the beginning of this. I, I'm we're exhausted from the last round of of these discussions, and it's just gear, you know, gearing up for another another bout. If they continue down this road, I, I can't imagine that this won't finally be the trigger to go back to the charter, to, to eradicate the council or to make them at large instead of by district or just get rid of this charter and go back to the way it was with three commissioners. Public policy can't go down this road. Look, these are the guys that squandered all that money in the medical mart. They squandered all that money on their slush funds. Now they're crying poor because they can't afford a jail and a justice center. They have demonstrated over and over again that they're not competent to run the county. And now they're bollocksing up what is a very strong plan. Ugly business you're listening to today in Ohio. Was a supposedly independent study on the need for a new Boston Road I-71 interchange rigged to favor Strongsville supporters by leaving out the views of opponents. This is this was a Steve Litt story from about a week ago, but we never talked about it, and it's fascinating. Right, and I do want to point out that it is a, a commentary by Steve Litt, but um, this uh, there are plans to turn the two-lane Boston Road, which is on the border of Brunswick and Strongsville, into an interchange off of I-71 to uh, alleviate traffic, and it would allow truck traffic leading to a Strongsville Industrial Park to be routed through there. Brunswick City Council passed two resolutions opposing a preliminary feasibility study that was released last month. Brunswick Vice Mayor Nicholas Hannock says the study was designed to be rigged. There's no justification for it. And it was done by a Strongsville-based company, the Euthenics uh, Engineering Firm, which provided five possible alignments at Boston Road, costing anywhere from $28.6 $28.6 million to $51 million, but there's also a do-nothing option in there. But Hannock says he's concerned that Brunswick will bear added costs to move utility lines that run along Boston Road and other Boston Road improvements beyond the interchange. He said there was absolutely no engagement with Brunswick officials. Uh, Mayor, uh, Governor DeWine's uh, spokesman, Dan Tierney, says they're really not wedded to the Boston Road exit, but it was placed in the state budget to help bring the two cities together. So the representative 
Tom Patton, who represents Strongsville, he's been frustrated. There's been decades of inaction and infighting over traffic congestion along the I-71 corridor, especially at State Road 82 and at Howe Road. He believes that a lot of the Howe Road rush hour traffic is from motorists going to and from Brunswick. And But will the Boston Road exit relieve congestion, congestion or create what they call induced demand, which means if you build it, they will come? We've heard from some Brunswick residents since this, the Steve's Lit uh, published his piece saying, hey, there are people in Brunswick that want this interchange. There are people that are tired of the traffic and think this would be helpful. We also heard from a guy who said he was an engineer on the project 30, 40 years ago that did some work out there. And they looked at those petroleum lines running alongside Boston Road they didn't know what was in them or what they'd find if they dug them up. And they thought it would be so expensive if they did that they didn't touch it. And he sent a note saying it's now 30, 40 years later. That's only gotten much worse. What what might they get into if they start digging around? So lots of factors in this discussion. It's a it's a great battle. It is highly unusual for a state legislator to insert into law that they will build an interchange. Uh, Like you said, Patton said he's frustrated and he's trying to spark conversation. Uh, Mike DeWine keeps saying he's going to be the great mediator on this. How's he going to do that? Well, and it's interesting, you know, and we did a roundtable on this a while back where I was like, well, too bad, so sad. This is how, you know, because they were complaining that Strongsville built up that corridor with big box stores and retail and restaurants. And so they say, well, that's their problem because that's their, you know, uh, they built that problem. So I don't know. I, it's it's going to be interesting to see how it goes. But it is right on the border of both cities. So you know that both cities will benefit from, you know, decreased congestion. Yeah, I, I was just, it was interesting to hear from people who live in Brunswick saying, I don't agree with the sentiment against it. Of course, the people who live on Boston Road are completely united. They don't want it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb is unveiling all sorts of strategies this week for dealing with the city's violence issues and its very serious police shortage. He laid them out in an editorial board meeting Monday. What's he got cooking, Courtney? Yeah, the mayor The mayor had a lot to tell us yesterday. And, and one of the big things that came out of that meeting was this incentive and bonus package the mayor's pursuing to get and maintain more police on the Cleveland police force. We know staffing is an issue. The city hall routinely talks about how it's a national problem, but it's hitting Cleveland as part of that. And we budgeted for about 1,500 officers this year. We're more than 250 below that. Chief Drummond told us that's about a 20%. You know, we're 20% less than where we need to be on core police functions. And so to increase recruitment and to hopefully stop officers from leaving for other jobs or or taking jobs in other departments, perhaps out in the suburbs, more money, less crime. One of the ways the mayor wants to do that is this bonus package. It's going to have to be negotiated with the two unions. They'll have to agree to some of these things. But part of the aim here is to increase pay for cadets going through academy. We know that there were only nine folks in Cleveland's last cadet class and, and the mayor told us yesterday, we're not going to hit our target of hiring 180 new 
cadets this year. So they're really focusing on on that pipe, the beginning of the pipeline and getting new younger folks in the door. At the same time, he was also talking about various bonus incentives he wants to deliver for existing officers, perhaps expanding longevity pay and other sweeteners there to keep them around. But amidst all this, the mayor is pursuing a renewed push to 12-hour shifts. This is something he pitched a few months ago. The rank and file union, the CPPA, soundly rejected that idea. But Bibb's going back at it, and it sounds like he's taking some incentives with him to see if if they can work out a deal between those. Yeah, it's. I don't think the union would oppose lots more money going to cadets and officers, but the the give back is the twelve hour shift. And I, Layla and I were talking about this yesterday. I think the reason the twelve hour shift makes things more efficient is police have to do things at the beginning and end of their shifts. And if they're on eight hour shifts, that means there's a lot more time doing that kind of thing. In a twelve hour shift, you reduce the amount of time they're not on the road. Uh, maybe there's some other aspects to it as well. Uh, we did ask him <laughs> several times, I think, whether the Civilian Police Commission, you know, they had a wildly raucous, unbalanced first meeting a week ago, might be discouraging people from coming to work for the Cleveland Police Division. And, and they keep rolling out, they kept rolling out the same platitude that we trust the training of our officers, we trust the training of our officers, which wasn't what the question was. They were trying to say that the consent decree has made the police department much more professional, which there's no doubt that's true. It's a much more professional department than it was a decade ago. But I don't think we ever got I think they said we don't believe the commission is discouraging our recruiting because every city in America is having the same problem and nobody else has a commission. But the mayor did say he was disconcerted by the behavior of that board and is hoping that it it shows more decorum going forward. Yeah, and, and he kind of talked about democracy's messy. I don't think anybody wanted to see the CPC meeting head in that direction. It it is a fledgling organization, and and the mayor has given them kind of some structural support. His chief ethics officer, Delonte Spencer Thomas, has been working with the commission and helping them on some basic kind of startup concepts and and how to create this body, but. The mayor, I don't think, was pleased to see it unfold that way. Well, one of our board members suggested maybe they just need to study Robert's Rules of Order because they (laughs) clearly don't understand how a meeting should operate. We talked to him about all sorts of other things. I know that you've got another story coming going on some of them, but it was uh, it was interesting to hear where his head is at because this is a crisis, and it just happened that this meeting was scheduled the day after a mass shooting. Uh, in the downtown core. So good timing for the discussion. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Speaking of that mass shooting, Lisa, what do some downtown business owners have to say following the shooting of nine people in the wee hours on Sunday morning? Yeah, this happened about 2.30 in the West 6th Street Warehouse District area where nine people were shot. None of them died, but one is in serious condition. Um, This was happening as the bars were closing and people were leaving. And then after a city press conference about that shooting, 
Sunday afternoon, there was another incident about 4.30 in the afternoon when a man was pulled from his car at gunpoint and robbed. And then in June, two Cleveland Browns players were robbed at a warehouse district nightclub as they left. So Bobby George, who owns several downtown businesses, including Rebol and Barley House, he's offering $50,000 for any information that leads to the arrest of the gunman in this mass shooting. He says he's sick and tired of seeing the city go to crap, although he didn't use the word crap. Um, He said, but on the other hand, closing businesses early to avoid potential violence is cowardly and lets the criminals win. He says, you know, you can stay paranoid and afraid, but don't let the criminals win by not coming downtown. We also talked to Jaden Lawrence, who's a spokesman for the Agavan Rye restaurant. He's concerned that people will stay away from downtown. He says they don't know whether they'll have good business or bad business on any given night. So, you know, it becomes a staffing problem for them. So yeah, this, this has become a crisis and they want to fight back. I think I read after the 430 armed robbery, there was yet another one at 530 in the same vicinity. So, so it's not just in the wee hours, it's happening in the daylight hours. And who's going to want to come downtown if that's what the vision of what you see there is. Uh, I, I'm not surprised that the business owners are anxious and want to do something about it. Uh, but it gets it back at the, the whole question how do you stop this gun violence? Somebody sprayed mm-hmm. bullets into a crowd. Mm-hmm. How do you stop that? That's what the mayor was talking about. We'll have to see if it gets anywhere. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We're going to do one more. June saw the record so far for 2023 for what someone would pay for a house in Cuyahoga County. Wait, look, where is it? How much was it? And what makes it worth all that much cash. Reporter Zach Smith tells us that a home in Cleveland's Edgewater neighborhood sold for $6.7 million in June. And that sets the new record for the most expensive homes sold in Cuyahoga County so far in 2023. It sits on just under two acres on Harborview Drive near the border of Lakewood. This is a 27-room house that was built in 1962. It has six bedrooms, eight bathrooms, and two half baths. Ugh. So many bathrooms, but I guess if you're buying this house, you're not really looking to clean your own toilets. (laughs) (laughs) It also has five fireplaces, a pool, and an attached three-car garage. Apparently, at one point in 2017, it was listed at $9.15 million, but it's been renovated since then. So I'm not sure why it eventually sold for less than that asking price. Zach's story includes a list of other properties that sold for over a million dollars in June. Two of them are in Bay Village, both just a couple blocks away from me, incidentally. And I, I looked them up online. I think in both cases, my whole house could fit in their kitchen <laughs> or their wine cellar or their movie theater or whatever. But, uh, yep, it's right. a wild world of real estate. <laughs> it's a lot of money for a house. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Tuesday. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Courtney. Thanks to everybody who listens to Today in Ohio.